This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. I think that the the makeup of that um, that commission that around that report was really telling as well. Like there was only one young person on that, and that young person is is also somebody who's written extensively uh, against the anti racist movement. You know, it couldn't even claim to be objective. It was doomed from the start. Today's episode is the first of a three part discussion on race, class, and education in the UK a three-part conversation that really is the basis for the theme of season three, arts, anti-racism, anti-discrimination and social change. The murder of George Floyd last year triggered wider conversations I've been having about race outside of my circles of black friends and family. You'll hear me talk more about this during this series, but let me just say that historically, England isn't really known for its direct confrontation of things. Even our language is indirect, it's inferred and it's implied, so that when it comes to talking about difficult and complex things, I think we find it extremely uncomfortable. I also wanted to frame these conversations around race and racism within a British context. We tend to look to America as the originators and purveyors of racism, but as a very good friend of mine said, someone who is extremely direct in her language, which I love by the way, when we understand that race is a construct, Britain is, whether we like to admit it or not, the architect of structural, economic, social and racial oppression, so much so that the Americans fought a war of independence over it. I do want to be clear from the outset, though, that these conversations aren't really about trying to come up with fixed solutions. This is a podcast about process, so I'm interested in presenting ideas and perspectives from people who are experienced in their practice so that we can then take away these ideas and consider them. Neither is this about blaming people. I'm really not a fan of words like white guilt and white fragility. My personal belief is that a lot of our current language is actually creating further division. 
and I know people, many of whom are my friends, who would disagree with me on this, but I'm just not sure that you can guilt, shame or force people into taking ownership for their behaviour. I'm someone who really values in my own personal life relational harmony and so I'm more interested in heart change, not just cosmetic change or lip service and I just feel that there's a lot of that going on at the moment. But that's why I want to hear from you. Details of how you can get in touch are at the end of the episode. But the best way to tie together this long-winded musing of mine is if you listen to the season three trailer, you will have heard me speak about the Japanese art of kintsugi, of mending to make new. And what I'm hoping to do in a small way through these conversations is take some time to examine the broken pieces. We cannot mend to make new without first doing that. And so we kick off the discussion with journalist and author of Sunday Times bestselling book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, Rennie Edo Lodge. I do think that there is now a, at least amongst people in this country who consider themselves to be liberal, mm-hmm. there is a baseline acceptance that institutional racism exists in a way that I don't think that there really was even a few years ago. And I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we didn't have a government report coming out saying that institutional racism doesn't exist. Rennie's 2017 book was birthed out of a 2014 blog post of the same name, sharing her experiences of what I would call almost a kind of racial emotional fatigue, which we touch on in our interview. If you haven't read the book yet, I recommend it, especially if you want to get a sense of Britain's racial and political history. But as you can imagine, Rennie has been talking about this book for a few years now, which she says at this point is very much nostalgic for her. So in fact, we talk more about the controversial report on race that was commissioned by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and written by the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. It was published around the time I interviewed Rennie at the end of April to much public contestation, and we get into that. We also talk about mental health and managing what Rennie describes as soft liberal racism. As another friend of mine said, navigating racism in this country is like running antivirus software all the time. And whilst we don't allow it to consume our lives, at times it truly can be exhausting. We talk about how isolating racism can be and that writing this book, which Rennie likes to shorten to why I'm, has actually created a connectedness and given her a global community. But to have made all of those links and to have met all of those people who are doing like incredible, interesting work, like Mm. in the Netherlands, there's the Black Archives, you know, there's all sorts of amazing, interesting work. And I met so many incredible people and it helped me. It just reignited the internationalist perspective of the of the work. So, yeah, I would say the response was incredible on the continent. I also, with distance, know that that response wasn't necessarily about me or even my work. But it was almost like a pressure valve of, wow, we now have space mm. to be really, there's a curated space now to discuss these topics. We talk about navigating success, how it can be a mixed blessing, the challenge of finding the creative space to make new work. In some respects, I think that it would have been a bit easier to be a mid-range, like successful writer whose fourth or fifth book blew up, you know, because it's it's very weird being a person whose very first piece of, you know, work blows up and then you're like, well, I guess it's what everybody knows me for. Should I write more like that? I'm not sure I want to. And we talk about Rennie's eclectic taste in music. Rennie Edu-Lodge, thank you so much for taking the time out today to come and talk to me about race. 
I thought we were talking about creativity. We, well, we are. We're talking about we're talking about creativity or creative ways to to look at race and racism and if you like combat it. I um I feel like this conversation is just not going away. Um, oh, uh, we're on a podcast. I was nodding, so. <laughs> Yeah, and um, for those who 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 might not know you, which I feel like is very few, you are the author. You are a journalist, a writer, an activist, and you are the author of the Times best-selling book, uh, an award-winning book. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Um, That's correct. Yes, uh, I, I'm aware this book came out in 2017, so you have been talking about this for like three years. Yeah, I mean, it'll be four years in June. And um, honestly, I'm not really, I don't really do interviews about it anymore. Um, so this is a, it's nostalgia for me. But I thought I'd do you, I was like, okay, Nancy's asking, so let me, let me come on. <laughs> so we should, we should frame the context, how I know you. You did a podcast called About Race. Renee Richardson was the uh, podcast producer. She asked me to write the music. That's how I know you. That's correct. That is yeah. correct. So I I think the reason I've sort of, I'm kind of doing a series on race and racism because, well, we know that that report that came out, well, I guess it's been called the Tony Sewell report about mm. racism in this country and, you know, people are quite furious about it. Now they're saying, well, someone else edited it, you know. I just feel like this conversation is not going away and I'm not sure we're having any helpful conversations about it. I feel like everything is getting more and more polarised. Um, and yes, you're right, this is a podcast about creativity, but I also trained as a lawyer. I'm th I think about justice issues, justice issues all the time. And I just, I wanted to have a kind of a series of different people talking about race and racism. And I, I just want to quote you to you about, you know, why you wrote this book. Oh, no, not my own words. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I feel like if I quote your own words, I can't misquote you. So you said, I've written this book to articulate that feeling of having your voice and confidence snatched away from you in the cocky face of the status quo it has been written to counter the lack of the historical knowledge and the, and the political backdrop you need to anchor your opposition to racism. So, I mean, why did you write this book? And I, I, I suppose I want to say why, ask you why, but also I feel like this book is ever relevant. It's not stopped being relevant, even though it came out four years ago. Yeah, sadly, sadly. So, yeah, just sort of. Tell me, like, why, I guess, and, and, you know, where you are now. This is four years later, nostalgia, as you said. But why is it still relevant? Why are your words still relevant, particularly now? Well, I think, you know, when I started writing the book, I mean, I wrote the blog post that is based on almost seven, year, seven years ago. When I, when I started writing the book, we were still in a belief of, the country still in a belief of like post-racial, you know. So I was dealing, I think the questions, some of the questions that the book seeks to answer are not the same questions that that are relevant now. So for example, at the time of the 
writing, I, I was trying to counter opposition to things like positive discrimination, mm-hmm. you know, trying to unpack things like why reverse racism is kind of a myth. You know, we are at a point now where I think there's a significant amount of Britons who would be able to give you a decent, like, definition of what structural racism actually is. Again, I'd like to think that I had a part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book was answering questions that I think are less relevant today, but I think that kind of like part of the book's success, you know, is that there has been a partisan backlash to the narrative and the perspective of, of an anti-racist, an anti-racist perspective. Mm-hmm. That, and I think that's kind of like what we're dealing with now, you know? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that report by the government, which I think if you go right, even if you go beyond the authorship of it and actually look at um, when it was commissioned and who the, the commissioner was, it's to me it was doomed from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Boris's uh, advisor, Boris Johnson's advisor um, around those issues is a woman who actually around the time of my book coming out um, wrote a long piece in the right-wing magazine, The Spectator, deriding then Prime Minister Theresa May's, um, you know, work around racism and stop and search. Mm -hmm. And I think like, you know, I'm a Labour voter, but I will give the Conservatives credit where it's due. Theresa May um, was somebody who was far more progressive on race and racism than the current conservative government. When she was home secretary, she wrote pieces in, you know, The Voice, Britain's biggest black newspaper, talking about how they, her government were looking to, you know, stop unfair, you know, stop and search numbers on young black men. Um, at the time, around the same time that my book came out, she was, do, she was doing work around, um, you know, institutional racism and whatnot. And, Boris's now advisor on these issues wrote, wrote that big piece in The Spectator, um, deriding both Theresa May and also me. My book had just come out at the time, you know, and sort of saying that anti-racism is essentially is a farce. I'm not, I'm, that, that's me paraphrasing, by the way. It's not a direct quote, but you can still go and look, at, look that up. You know, Boris Johnson's equalities minister is somebody who has placed herself um, in the culture war um, and is somebody who appears to be, again, against anti-racism. I think that, like, there's a playbook coming from certain people in the Conservative Party now that's straight from Trump's administration on this topic. Mm. And again, this uh, our current equalities minister has called, again, in that right-wing magazine, you know, it's in a trend here, said that my work, literally <laughs> the piece of name checked me, advocated segregation, you know, so. Right. I'm not just saying, obviously, I'm not just talking about me and my work. I think, you know, the book was published for almost four years ago now. And since then, like, there's been a, an amazing renaissance of, you know, black writers, artists, thinkers, you know, directors, producers, everything. Like, obviously, it's not just me and my work. But like many of us have come to the fore, many of us have been incredibly successful and we are, you know, the rest of the country is 
is on our side, you know, in believing that racism is bad and that there should be policy changes mm-hmm. to, um, you know, redress the, uh, the balance that was horribly, you know, weighted since slavery and colonialism. And um, currently we have influential people in government who are who have placed themselves diametrically opposed to to us and our work. And so when you say things have become, the conversation's not coming, going away and it's becoming more polarized, I think we kind of have to recognize that um, if we want to talk about sides, there's one side and it's writers and artists and musicians and activists and people, ordinary people on the ground. Like mm-hmm. we saw the people who were going out and marching in those Black Lives Matter protests last year. It was basically teenagers. Yeah. Us. And then the other side is government figures, mm-hmm. you know, literally the establishment, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really telling, you know. I think that the the makeup of that um, that commission that around that report was really telling as well. Like there was only one young person on that. And that young person is, is also somebody who's written extensively uh, against the anti-racist movement, you know. Mm. It, it couldn't even claim to be objective. It was doomed from the start. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the government should have invited me to come on it. You know, if they had, I would have declined. But this government doesn't want anything to do with me, obviously. Mm. Um, but they didn't even pretend to be objective in the <laughs> in the putting together that commission. And so... I, Obviously, the report came out, people were very upset, and I wasn't surprised that people were upset. I do, sometimes I just think maybe the government's trolling us. I personally don't like to use my energy around getting upset when I can see that right from the beginning, the project was was doomed and, you know, was actually purely ideologically motivated. It wasn't curious. Uh, it wasn't open-minded, and it didn't even want to draw from the existing data, many of that data actually coming from the government from successive governments itself. But when the British Medical Journal is publishing an op-ed against your work, mm. saying, you know, the British Medical Journal Journal published a uh, op-ed about this race report, essentially saying, listen, it's, this is not credible. Mm. Um, there are clear institutional, like, biases in healthcare. Mm. Everybody involved in that report should be ashamed of themselves. Mm-hmm. I know that if the British Medical Journal had published an op-ed about my work, discrediting it, I would burn my work. <laughs> I would be, you know, I try to parrot my work on being, you know, well-cited, well-sourced and coming from a, a tradition. And so if credible sources like the British Medical Journal had condemned me, I would be embarrassed, I'd be ashamed. Mm-hmm. And I think that just really shows you how ideologically um, driven our government is around these issues at the minute. They're, and I believe, and like, yeah, maybe I say this because I'm somewhat at the eye of the storm, but I believe that, our, that the government's position is wholly out of step with the British population. I do. Mm. That was a bit of a monologue. It, it, it was a it was a good monologue, it, it, and it's interesting. It's interesting because I know even the UN came out and spoke out against that. Yeah, paper. just recently. Again, if the UN was coming out to speak against my work, I'd be embarrassed, mate. <laughs> it's like who these people in government? They're shameless. Anyway, please do continue. The thing is, you say the vast majority of the British population agree with you. I don't know. 
Perhaps I mean I I I mean you're a journalist so I'm sure you you your part of your job is to look at the swathe of information out there not just you know finding things that corroborate how you think but you know some of the stuff I'm reading so for example even how and I'd love to know what your thoughts on this even how we define racism now I feel is so broad that I'm like, you talk about it in your book, you know, you talk about racism n- not being the same as prejudice, that racism, if you like, is prejudice plus power. And lots of people are saying, oh, that's racist. And we wouldn't call that, like, I would say 10 years ago, what they're describing as racist, to me, isn't racist, it's prejudice, it's, it's hateful behaviour, it might even be xenophobic, but it's not racist. And I think like I was thinking about, uh, you know, we know that Piers Morgan left ITV and I keep seeing him saying, and he's not the only one who says this. He says, I haven't got a racist bone in my body. That's what he'll say. And I know lots of people who think like that. Uh, I was actually talking to a friend the other day and he said he was he was telling me the story. He's white and he was telling me the story that he was going with a black friend to the Charlotte Street Hotel. He went with his friend there and before they uh went into the hotel, his black friend said, will I be welcome here? I.e. because I'm, you know, will I be welcome as a black man here? And he was, my friend was stumped by it. And he said to me, you know, I think about the people around me and none of them I can think of are actually racist. And we were having this discussion about, you know, racism and structural racism, but he is someone who who really doesn't think that he is. And it's not about me saying that you are or you are racist, but I think this idea that perhaps the readers of your book have had this awakening, but I'm not sure. I think lots of people are like, we don't want to hear this anymore. The government has said Britain is not a racist country. We have a few issues here and there. But other than that, can we just stop talking about it? I don't want to hear it anymore. And and so I would be interested to know what you think, and even in terms of defining terms, whether you think terms like, you know, what racism means, what prejudice means, and so on, and, you know, moving away from words like reverse racism, if if you could sort of speak into that and define those, how you would define those terms. I know you've done so in your book, but for the listeners. Yeah, I feel I've done so in the book. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to say because it's been a while since I re- wrote the book, and obviously the book is my is what I would refer to. I don't want to say something that is not, not what the book says. Do you know what I mean? The book is my brain dump on this topic. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you said I mean when you said you know racism is prejudice plus power. That is something that you said. Yeah, I, think, I, yeah, did. I did say that in the book, and I definitely like. I feel like I got that from somewhere. Oh, I can't remember where though, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a generalised, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I am not sure that everybody thinks that that is true. I, yeah. yeah. You know, when I said that, I like, I think that the, I think that the government is out of step with the majority of, with the vast majority of the British pub mm-hmm. population, you know. I think that the people in this country who think about these things meaningfully, mm. you know, are of the opinion that institutional and structural racism does exist, you know, mm-hmm. and that there will always be people who don't think about these things meaningfully. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a massive story in the news currently about a football super super league. That's not of my interest. I don't think about it meaningfully. 
I have no strong opinion, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure why people are upset, but <laughs> it's not for me. I just feel like, oh, it's not for me. Do you know what? And I think there's lots of people in this country who feel like uh, maybe race and racism is not a topic for me. I think what's revealing is, you know, we can all have apathy about certain topics and themes and issues. And apathy is quite different from like hostile defensiveness or mm-hmm. angry opposition, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be quite different. There's quite a difference between me sort of shrugging my shoulders at that football news and then me when I switch on the news and I see people getting upset and protesting about it, which is happening now, mm-hmm. me now mounting a campaign against them. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that's weird? <laughs> like, I wouldn't do that because I'm like, uh, you know, I'm I'm apathetic about the issue and I'm mm. but you know, I respect their right to be upset, you know. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I, I I get it. I suppose, you know, football, the impact that football ha- like your apathy towards football, which is the, like my apathy towards football, I'm like, please enjoy it, but I'm not I'm not really fussed, is not going to have an impact on other people's lives and how they conduct their lives, your or my apathy towards football. But I really feel that this apathy, this disengaging when it comes to these issues actually does impact other people's lives. I, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree because I don't see apathy and disengagement. But then right. again, you know, I'm a person who's written a book that kind of puts me and my work a bit at the eye of the storm. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I come across daily people who are meaningfully engaged on these issues, you know. That's fantastic. And and I, I guess then my question would be, what are some of the the changes that you have seen, you know, four years later, people engaging with your work? I, I And what changes, marked changes have you seen because of your book and the engagement people have made through meaningful thought? Well... I always think that I'm not the best person to ask this, you know, Um, because whilst I come across people who are meaningfully engaged, there is also probably since the success of the book more distance between me and the people who are doing the work on the ground than ever before because now this book is maybe so well known in the area. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'd be better placed if the book almost wasn't as successful to be able to to answer the question of like what exactly has changed. But I can tell you more on a more abstract level, I do think that there is now a, at least amongst people in this country who consider themselves to be liberal, mm-hmm. there is a baseline acceptance that institutional racism exists in a way mm-hmm. that I don't think that there really was. Mm-hmm. even a few mm-hmm. years ago. And I, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we didn't have a government report coming out saying that institutional racism doesn't exist. Right. The thing about that report that I thought was interesting when I was reading it was that there was, they drew on certain things like, for example, looking at geography and population density and poverty and stuff like that as reasons why these are the reasons for the advantage and disadvantage, mm-hmm. not the not racism. And I guess that was frustrating for me to read because I was like, but those are the the reasons why some people live in densely populated poor areas is is everything to do with race and class. It's not Absolutely. nothing to do with race and class, you know? Yeah. That, that, the same reason why, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic when there was all this discussion about 
Mm, I don't know the term to use. I'm going to say people of color. Mm, I don't really like BAME, but that's the term I'll use for now. Mm-hmm. You know, dying disproportionately because of coronavirus. And, mm. you know, when people of color are more likely to be in jobs where you come into contact with the public, more mm. likely to be in working class jobs. Mm. That's an issue of race and class as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was disappointing to see that kind of like disingenuousness. I said, yeah, I'm just going on a tangent now. No, I, I don't think you're, you are. And I mean, I'm actually going to, I highlighted something that, that was in here because I just thought, oh dear. But this is at the beginning of the report. It says, put simply, we no longer see a Britain where the system is deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. The impediments and disparities do exist. They are varied and ironically, very few of them are directly to do with racism. Too often, racism, which is written in inverted commas, is the catch-all explanation and can be simply implicitly accepted rather than explicitly examined, which is saying exactly what, you know, what you're saying isn't the case, that all these things are absolutely tied together. They absolutely are. I I don't know where you sit politically, but I have noticed a trend on the right um, in the last five years. And the trend is that um, the things that the left are winning the conversation on culturally, those wins mm-hmm. are very recent. So, for example, Me Too or... Mm-hmm. An, mm-hmm. A, a broad understanding of what institutional racism is. Mm-hmm. Like, I would say that we, and I'm assuming that you're part of this we, although I don't mm-hmm. know, I don't know what you say, and I don't want to assume. So I'm not going to assume. Um, but the left has won those arguments fairly recently, after probably decades of trying to make the argument, you know, um, I take, I took a lot of my cues from what, activists were saying in the 80s, you know. Um, Mm. And yet the right comes back with responses that tries to suggest that these are broad-based beliefs that the general public has had Mm. forever. Mm. Like that there is a widespread belief that, that society is institutionally racist is the status quo and has been forever. That's not the case, you know, it's simply not the case, you know, that's not true at all. In fact, it's literally been the opposite. And, and that's why when I was researching the book and reading around these topics 80 years ago, the, the people who were doing similar work to me were experiencing even more of a struggle, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's simply not the case that, I mean, when I walk around my local neighborhood now, I see signs and windows saying Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. That's happened in the last year. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. these broad, these broad like cultural movements that have really won over people's hearts and minds are so recent. Yes. But the right dis- discusses these things like it's the status quo and has been for decades. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true, yeah, you know? If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look, 
all because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name, and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well, I was raised in London, and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese, and then they see my face, and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. We have anti-discrimination laws, progress has been made, but governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so, what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation, with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech, to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, it's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it. And also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. And I think Airbnb have recognised that by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact, and secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much-needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. But I'd be interested to know, because I've been been thinking about this a lot. So I I come from a background where my my parents were both in academia. My mum's, I guess, speciality is pedagogy and black pedagogy. It's what I grew up thinking about and and so on and and, and listening to. And my dad was is a South African. um, He was a pan-Africanist. So I was in a very radical, if you like, household or what would have been considered radical. But what I find very interesting and what my mum's work is rooted in is sort of a a race from a British standpoint that we tend to look to America a lot. And I was thinking about how, why is it or why do you think it is that we have looked in many ways to America 
to sort of shape. When, when we're talking about race, it tends to be us looking to America. So, for example, the BLM protest that's, uh, that kicked off in, in the summer after the murder of George Floyd. I'm trying to think, what is it about America that when it comes to race, we look there first and we know what's going on there, perhaps more than here? I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. I think it's probably for the same reason that we watch, you know, like Hollywood films and mm-hmm. binge watch, you know, uh, American produced things on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's because America has a kind of like um, cultural dominance mm-hmm. in the English speaking world. Mm-hmm. Simple as that, you know, in the same way that we follow their politics and stuff. But I would say that that I don't think that's really the case for Britain anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in the places that I'm looking and in even those uh, protests last year, there was a distinctly British feel about them. Um, and, and, you know, again, the young people, some of whom were teenagers, were using the opportunity to bring to the fore, you know, distinctly British stories. Mm-hmm. Um, just recently, I saw um, fundraising for a mural uh, um, commemorating the Bri- the 1981 Brixton riots. Right. Um I think they actually met their fundraising target. So if that was once the case, I, I, I think that was the case in Britain and maybe it is more broadly here, but for the people who are deeply engaged in those issues, I don't think that's the case anymore. You know, okay. I've seen some incredible and interesting homegrown stuff happening here. And even, you know, the much discussed statue toppling in Bristol. Mm, the Colson statue. It was, that was the end point of a conversation that had been happening in Britain, in, sorry, not Britain, in Bristol for years mm-hmm. <laughs> prior to a bunch of people getting annoyed <laughs> and just pulling it down. Mm-hmm. There were loads of community conversations and even discussions like between the community and the, the council about it, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that there were actually people who were trying to go through the pop proper channels. Mm. And that's a highly local topic, you know. Okay. So I don't think it's the case as much as it once was, you know. Okay. This is I, I it's it's good to I, I, I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying hearing you disprove some of my thoughts. So <laughs> this is this is really good. I um I wonder, I was actually interviewing a, an artist and sculptor. Uh, last year for the podcast about, you know, statues. I, I suppose then my, my question following on f- um, from that is, what do you think is being put in place of all? So the statues are being removed. What kind of discussions are being had and what what can replace some of the things that are being moved out the way, you know, like ide- ideologically, but also practically like a statue has been knocked down? You know, hmm. well, I don't know actually what happened in Bristol in the end. I know that they fished the statue out of the water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's for the movement to decide. I know mm. that an artist um, made a statue of one of the protesters last year, or maybe it was early this year. I think that's really for the movement to decide. Yeah. I'm well, always really like careful on answering these sorts of things because. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be seen as the oracle on the matter, you know. Absolutely, and I and I, I what I, I I agree, and it, for me, it's not even about 
sort of thinking of you as as Renier du Lodge has the answers to all of this. It's not that. It's it's genuinely like what are your thoughts rather than you being sort of the benchmark for what's correct. They're, they're your thoughts. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are your thoughts, you know? I think that, you know, I'm excited to see uh, what comes comes forth, you know, in terms of like, you know, so for example, I'm talking about that mural. Um, mm-hmm. That seems like a, an amazing way to... Um, you know, and essentially a public history art project, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Those really like raise my hopes. I just, I didn't grow up around, um, you know, kind of like visual storytelling around like the black presence in Britain that mm-hmm. was on on my high street. I didn't get that. And now people are doing that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think when people think of the, the movement, people think of, you know, placards and protests, but it, and I'm not saying that isn't necessary, but it's also so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, it's the holistic approach. I know, for example, a friend who has a platform called Black British Art, and she's really curated this space that celebrates Black British art in the broadest, broadest, most exciting sense and people are really having conversations and about about you know celebrating our history and what and what that looks like and also creating new narratives you know I think that's also uh, really important that it's also not always uh, a a friend of mine's in film and tv and she's really talking about at the uh, some of the challenges have been as like the BBC and other um, production companies are commissioning black work it tends to be they often want it to be rooted in trauma and her just being you know you know we have other stories apart from our trauma you know and how important it is to to share the breadth and the diversity of of who we are and also generationally who we are because it looks different from my mother's generation than it does to like like you say the people the young people at the BLM who are like gen z you know it's a very different um they they have a different offering, which is really interesting. But I'd like to talk with you a, a little bit about mental health and managing these discussions um, and how you feel about that. Um, yeah, because it's, it's something that I've been talking with some people about. I'd be interested to know your thoughts. I mean, I feel all right. I'm not really one for mm. um, theatrical confrontation. And, mm. you know, you were saying at the top of our conversation, you think things are really polarised. Mm-hmm. Well, I do too. And I'm just not really into, you know, obviously with a book that's been as successful as it has, I, I'm on the receiving end of many invitations to take part in carefully produced dramatics around the topic uh, on different news programmes and, I just don't get involved in that sort of thing. And I think that does great things for my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the reason I ended up writing the original blog post in the first place was that it was it was extremely draining and upsetting and dispiriting to be on the receiving end of uh, denials, defensiveness around the topic of racism. Um, and... Uh, so me writing that blog post was essentially a 
a key part of mental health, which was drawing a boundary. I drew a boundary for myself and then I made it public. Key boundary setting. You can't just draw it for yourself. You've got to communicate it. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And that's what I said. Yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. And these are the reasons why I doff my cap goodbye, <laughs> you know. And uh, I'm glad I did that. I think even if I hadn't written the book, I would have stuck to that rule for myself. Mm. Um, and, you know, the second line of that blog post is not all white people, just the vast majority who refuse to accept the legitimacy of structural racism and its symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I think I've stuck with that largely over the last four years. I haven't gone in, in any conversation. I haven't gone into many conversations with people who are angry and hostile. Um, that's good for my mental health. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, readers ask me um, how they can be preserving their mental health, and I just sort of say, "Well, it's not every argument, you know, it's not every fight. If someone's trying to bait you to draw and draw you out, or playing devil's advocate, you." We can't control them from doing that. We can't stop anybody from behaving any way that they want, but we can control ourselves. So mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exercise self-control and make a decision not to, not to take the bait. You know, I think that's been uh, an amazing savior for me over the last few years. That's good. So then that's, that's really good. What, what about, because what I have noticed in my own world it's not the bait, but more the, oh, I'm so sorry. There's a lot of, I've noticed a lot of sort of what I might call liberal, um, what's the word, sort of guilt thing, um, the, the I'm so sorry I didn't, which I find very infantilizing, actually. I, 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 I realise that's not what people realise they're doing, but, oh, <laughs> have you not experienced this absolutely not like none of my white friends <laughs> never in a million years would my white friends ever approach me like that <laughs> I've heard about it a lot though but I guess it's because like every white person who's in my life now like um they know me and they know what I'm about mm -hmm. so like and they've known it for at least a decade so at this point, being friends with me, if you're white, like you're either on board with the politics or you're not, you know. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. um, I guess they're, they're more radical than liberal. And so it, it is, I don't think it's really occurred to them to be coming to me groveling, doing apology or any of that <laughs> nonsense, you know. I'd like to think that they they are busy challenging racism in their actual lives rather than coming to me for approval or woke points or whatever, you know? So I've not been on the receiving end of that, but I've heard about it a lot. Please do tell me more. Oh God. Well, it's the, perhaps it could, I'm, now I'm questioning the people I'm around. You're giving me a complex, Renny. I'm like, sorry. Oh. <laughs> I think it could be the age of the people I'm around. Perhaps they're the people that haven't, had these they haven't had the kind of discussions like the self discussions that perhaps your friends have had but a lot of it is so when George Floyd happened I mean I'm someone I've talked about race for years perhaps obviously not as comprehensively as you have because I haven't written a book about it but it's something that I talk about a lot but maybe perhaps I compartmentalize I talk about it with certain groups of people anyway after George Floyd happened I got lots of messages from people going, I'm so sorry 
for what this country has done um, or that I haven't been aware. How are you feel? I, I can't even, but it was like, it was like, it was almost like, I'm so sorry, but it, it felt underneath it that I'm so sorry felt like I had to go, it's okay, thank you for saying I'm so sorry to me, which then becomes me managing your feelings. And I found it and, and I realised those people didn't know that that's what they were doing, but that's what they were doing. And it's a very liberal thing to do, you know. Um, yeah. And it was, it was irritating. I found it very, and I was like, suddenly, I was like, I suddenly felt like the only black girl in the village. Right. Um, and I, like I say, it was, it, it was whether they realised it or not, it had infantilizing implications. It, there was this sort of, oh, poor victim, you. I didn't realize that this is how you were feeling. Um, but actually, it was kind of about them because they had woken up, I guess. Are these people that you know very well or are these people you're close to or are they like loose acquaintances? Um, a medley. Some people I'm close to. Some people... Yeah, I mean, some people I'm pretty close to um, and some were acquaintances, but most of the people are people that I know. They're not people that, you know, I just say hello to at the post office. Mm. Well, that's interesting. Mm. So yeah. what was your question? No, so I'm just interested. So, so, you know, you said what you do is that you create boundaries when it comes to mental health. You create your boundaries and don't bite the bait. So that's in the space of sort of actively aggressive spaces where people are, you know, accusing or so on and so forth. But what I'm interested to know is when it is this sort of infantilizing. Oh, the I'm soft so liberal racism. Yeah. 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 What does one do to, because if you start telling them off, for want of a better phrase, then they're like, then they feel even worse. So although it's not my job to manage other people's emotions, what would you say is the right response to sort of create this healthy boundary? I, like I said, I haven't really been on the receiving end of that. And I, and I wasn't, I think I, now that you talk about, I think I received one message from somebody I went to uni with and I just didn't reply. Okay. So ghosting. So I should just ghost. <laughs> Um, not necessarily, it wasn't really ghost, but I'm sometimes joking. in face-to-face -face, pre-pandemic, I would be on the receiving end of that kind of thing, not from people that I knew, but, mm -hmm. you know, people would come up to me at book events and stuff, and I would not give them what they were requesting, mm -hmm. which was some kind of like Mother Teresa style absolution, you know, mm. uh, because if they're... I just think that like if they're if world events have brought up difficult feelings for them, then that's something that they need to work out, work through, you mm. know, maybe with their therapist, if they have one, their, their nearest and dearest, wherever they take their difficult feelings. But please don't expel that onto me. Mm. And I'm not saying that those difficult feelings aren't valid, but those messages don't scream. I'm doing serious self-reflection mm. <laughs> on how I may be. Um, you know, feeding into this uh, system. It just screams, make me feel better because I'm feeling, I, I, I'm dealing with difficult emotions. Yeah, the one person I went to uni with, I didn't respond because, I mean, I haven't spoken to her in eight years. So <laughs> why was I going to start then, <laughs> you know? 
That's very interesting. Yeah, that's good. You're you're um on that topic. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're I think you're probably freer than me when it comes to that stuff. Cause it was it was really irritating me and I was just anyway, I mean, that's a you know I think that you know, I did hear of this happening to somebody that I used to be friends with, and I did challenge them to ask the white people in their lives why they were compelled to do that. Mm. Just ask, why are you sending me this? Mm. Now, what's going through your head? Unfortunately, that person declined. But I think that, you know, turning the disc, they're feeling discomfort and they're, they're bringing it to you. And I think that you're entitled to turn it back and just be like, I'd really inter- be interested in why you felt the need to send me that. You know? That's good. That's good. Okay. You've written this book. It's been translated into Polish, Dutch, uh, uh, Flem- uh, is it translated into Flemish? I'm not sure. Definitely French, Spanish. Finnish. Finnish. Um, Swedish as well. Um, I'm really interested to know how other parts of Europe um, I don't know if you've noticed how other people in Europe have responded to to your work. I used to live in Paris and I, I think racism is more over in Paris than definitely than here. I had the worst ex- racist experiences living there. So I'd be interested to know how, have, have you had feedback from other parts of the world um, concerning your book? Well, you know, it I t- different to the UK? I toured the book uh, around... Europe, uh, again, pre-pandemic, uh, my experience was that English speak, I can't speak, English speaking people in Western European countries immediately latched onto it, right. you know, um, sometimes even before the book had been translated in, in their, their country. So for example, France, Germany were like gunning for the book in a positive way, you mm-hmm. know, and I think like readers in those countries felt ownership of the book before a publisher had even acquired the book in in those respective countries, which then made for quite difficult conversations when the when publishers acquired it, because the readers had already read it in English and had very specific ideas about how it should be translated, how it should be presented, et cetera, et cetera. That was an odd one to navigate as an author, but I think it really speaks to just how strongly people sort of connected with it, you know. Mm. Um I found, you know, I did an event in Berlin for the book and like a huge crowd turned, a huge engaged crowd turned up. Um, I, I went to Sweden. I was in Norway. I did all sorts of different events. And uh, I kind of think that people turning out for these events, like, remember I published book when I, this book when I was 27. Like, mm. you know, I published this book and it was like almost immediately like, almost like getting whiplash from the uh, amount of uh, interest. Mm-hmm. And I've now, four years later, come to the conclusion that those crowds weren't even, they're not necessarily turning out for me, you know? Mm-hmm. They weren't turning out for me as an author. Even for the book, it was for the topic at large, you know? And I think that there were, there were and still are, I think particularly in those countries around you know, I think Western European countries and, you know, France, as you mentioned, is an interesting one because 
at least at a posi- policy level, French government doesn't see race, which exactly. I think makes the situation even worse for people yeah. trying to challenge racism. Um, like, it was just, it, yeah, people just really, like, took to the anti-racist message of the book, you know, like ducks to water. Um, yeah, I I think that there is an amazing re- anti-racist movement in in Europe. Um, what's the word? Afropean? Yes, yes. Afropolitan or Afropean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's even a book out around, around the topic of being an a- a- African-European person and... Yeah. It's just really exciting, you know. When I was in Brussels, I met so many interesting a- activists and authors, and uh, same in France, same in Germany. You know, I feel, I think, very lucky to have had the essentially the privilege to have gone around all of those countries again pre-pandemic. That's another layer of uh, gratefulness that I have because I'm starting to think that that level of mobility is never going to be a- possible again. Um, <laughs> But to have made all of those links and to have met all of those people who are doing like incredible, interesting work, like mm. in the Netherlands, there's the Black Archives, you know, there's all sorts of amazing, interesting work. And I met so many incredible people and it helped me. It just reignited the internationalist perspective of the of the work that mm. I was trying to do with the book and, and the anti-racist like project in general. Um, so, yeah, I would say the response was incredible. Um, uh, on the continent but I also with distance know that that response wasn't necessarily about me or even my work but it was almost like a pressure valve of wow we now have space mm. to be really there's a curated space now to discuss these topics in a way that hadn't come from like establishment mm. places before and that's not to say that it hadn't come that people in those countries weren't making those spaces, but they weren't coming from literary festivals, you know, or bookshops. Yeah. Um, or maybe they were, I don't know. Like, I don't live in those countries, so um, I, I'm, I wasn't particularly part, also like I, I'm monolingual for my sins. <laughs> um, so I don't, I, that was a, a weird one to like not be able to understand the language. Um, mm. But I do know that in some of the countries I toured, like there were um, home authors who had also written around the topic. Right. Um, But I think there's this thing of being a British author, you know, that like I benefit from that kind of like English speaking um, dominance that, you know, we've discussed in terms of America. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of the world's publishing industry is concentrated in London. Right. Um, so that gives me like a huge level of like structural privilege over, you know, European authors who are writing in, in French or German, you know, when it comes to translation, most of like, there isn't much like translated fiction or nonfiction that, um, that's even translated in to be published into the English market. Whereas Mm -hmm. the reverse is like extremely regular, you know, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it was just, that was such a strange time for me because I was entering each of those countries and meeting those people who were all doing amazing work, but like, it felt like my work was a was an addition to like established work happening in every country that I didn't have 
access to and had no party to and didn't understand, you know. Mm. Um, and that was, I don't know, because I'm somebody who likes to do my research about stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. And I just, just through to be, by being monolingual, I wasn't able to um, do that. It was the same in Brazil as well, you know. Um, and I think that, you know, in English speaking countries. So when I went to Australia and New Zealand, it was a bit more easier to do my research and understand yeah. the context that I was being dropped into. But, you know, that huge level of like English speaking privilege also comes with a le- loads of ignorance, you know, Yes. because yes. I have access to like loads of cultural dominance, but I am also going into these spaces where I don't really fully understand the context. Um, and that was something I was very aware of. And I still recognize that like I have a ton of privilege in that area. That's why it was important for me to sort of like me and link up with as many, you know, home activists as I could while I was in the, in every country, mm-hmm. sometimes in the European continent, I'd be literally in a different country every day. So it wasn't always possible, but, but yeah. Um, and I think the final thing I say about that is, the success in every single one of those territories is also, you know, it's testament to the, like the, the strength of global white supremacy, isn't it? Like there isn't a, there's very few countries that have histories have not been warped by it, you Mm, know? mm, mm. Um, And again, I have to put some of that, you know, so when I'm turning up to these events and there's loads of people, it's like, wow, that's because, White supremacy is everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. As more, more, the more time passes, the more I think that a lot of this book and my success is not is less to do with me and more to do with the strength of, you know, how racism shapes and warps all of our lives, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of a depressing, depressing thing to think. Yeah. Sometimes I think the success of this is not a good thing, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, you have heartened me because I was I was more distressed until you started speaking about, you know, the responses that you've had. And I wonder, like you were saying, whether this is also about a global awakening. And sometimes you have this sort of lightning in the bottle where someone has written something that is is moving and corroborating what is going on in people's consciences consciences at the time. And people have been, I know in France, people have been talking about this a lot because I kind of keep up with that. But as you say, it tends to be locked in French-speaking markets rather than us getting to hear about it. And I think, um, I, I think perhaps it is this sort of global awakening that something, something has to change and we can do something about it and we are actively doing something about it, which for me is really heartening, actually. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's exactly it. You know, I think particularly, you know, on the European continent, I know I keep talking about this, but it is the, you know, my book, again, you know, benefited from me being a native English speaker and, that almost being like the, what's the phrase, lingua franca, mm-hmm. which meant that many different people from different countries could read it and resonate, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, when I was in Brazil and I met this guy who was like the president of um, the associate, sorry, the associate association of people um, who were living in favelas in Brazil. Mm. Um, and he was telling me that he'd been listening to the podcast. I was just like, my mind's Amazing. blown. You know what I mean? Like, my mind is blown. I think that that, you know, my answer to this is also my answer to why are we looking to America? You know, English as a lingua franca in the world, it tends to mean that, I mean, I'm not saying that everybody in the world speaking English, I'm not, you know, in some countries it's only the people with the most privilege and access and money who have access to um, speaking English and learning to speak English. But, but yeah, like that's never going to not be special to me that so many people around the world have connected with the words that I wrote. Mm. Because I think, um, you know, when I was writing, especially the original blog post, I felt incredibly alone, you know? Mm. So um, that's always going to be, um, to be honest with me, I, to be honest with you, I'm always going to be a bit blown away by that, you know, that something that I wrote when I was feeling very alone um, has connected with so many people who absolutely recognise those feelings. And I think as a writer, like, the... The, like the hardest thing as a writer is to take a feeling that is very intangible, mm-hmm. very difficult to describe, a, you know, a feeling, an emotion that sometimes people will communicate through screaming or violence or, you know, mm-hmm. weird behavior mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually putting that down into words and mm-hmm. communicating it effectively. And I'm really glad that I was able to do that um, Mm. for myself, but also for loads of other people who could resonate with those words and it helped them communicate effectively as well. amazing so so what are you working on next what am I working on next I've got ideas mm-hmm. I kind of want this pandemic to be over so I can actually get out there and like workshop the ideas and be in movement spaces again and be mm-hmm. in places where people share ideas you know mm. that's where I'd like to be right now and I'm not there at the minute due to mm. this pandemic um I've got ideas but also I think you know, my first book was very successful and that puts you in a weird space career-wise. Right. I watched this amazing uh, um, documentary uh, <laughs> on YouTube the other day. Um, it was about Vanessa Carlton and her song A Thousand Miles. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you've seen it, but... No, I haven't, but I must check it out because obviously that's the song that exploded her. Exactly. And like she wrote it when she was 17. Right. And there was loads of things that she said that I very much resonated with in the documentary about being somebody who, a person who's very young, who like, in her case, it was composed, in my case, wrote something that blows up and is super successful. And then you're like, well, where do I go from here? Like, mm. how, do, how does one evolve? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in some respects, I think that it would have been a bit easier to be a, mid-range like successful writer whose fourth or fifth book blew up you know because mm. it's it's very weird being a person whose very first piece of 
you know, work blows up and then you're like, well, I guess it's what everybody knows me for. Should I write more like that? I'm not yeah. sure I want to. Uh-huh. I don't think I want to. Um, I want to go in different places. But the, the, the physical spaces that I was absorbed in that helped me grow as a thinker, uh-huh. that made why I'm, they're a bit less accessible. They're a bit less accessible to me now. Mm-hmm. because of the success of why I'm. So it kind of puts me right. in a bit of a weird place, you know? Right. Mm. Do you still want to be talking about race? Or do you, do you think, I just want to talk about something completely different when you're thinking, you're talking about workshopping ideas and is it... I'm always going to be thinking about inequality and injustice, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that's where my work's always going to be, whether or not it's fiction, non-fiction, screenwriting, whatever. I don't know. I'm always going to be in that space. That's always going to be the place that I want to analyse. I just, mm-hmm. um, I don't think I'm going to be writing sp- specifically about race and racism. Or if I am, it's going to be linked to something mm-hmm. perhaps relevant or broader. I don't know. Although the first book was pretty broad. But yeah, it's a bit of a weird one, I think. I had to spend like three years just adjusting to being the person people recognised. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I couldn't write at that point because it was a really long time where I couldn't write because I was like, every time I wrote something, like I knew, like, I was like, I couldn't uncouple just writing as a thing that I did write it and writing for publication. Mm-hmm. And because everybody's got something to say about everything these days almost editing myself as I was writing you know yeah because I wasn't able to write authentically and from the heart anymore because I just felt like oh someone's not gonna like this someone's not gonna like that and it's just a straight jacket place (laughs) to be trying to do any useful and interesting Mm. work from so I just stopped for a bit you know that's good. Well, they, I mean, musicians have the same with their sophomore albums. If you do, like D'Angelo did Brown Sugar, huge record. Everybody loved that record. I can't remember how many years it took him to do Voodoo. And then Messiah came out, I don't know how many years. Like, I think when he, Messiah came out, I think it was 20 years after, you know, and that sort of, obviously, I don't know what was going on with him, but that sort of mental pressure where you're sort of, you're creating with, the pressure and the voices of other people in your head or one's head make make writing. Because in many ways, what I understand when I'm reading why I'm no longer, you know, why I'm, as you call it, is in some ways you're writing for yourself. You're writing to make sense of things for yourself. Um, not in a selfish way. I don't mean in that way. Um, but, you know, you, you're making sense of things. And so to keep writing about the same thing, however many years after you wrote, you know, it comes off a blog post, you're not in that place, you don't feel isolated anymore. You've kind of, in some ways, got this global community of people that are resonating with your work because it connects with something in them as well. Um, it's trying to, I guess, having the same freedom to just explore um, now in the same way that you did with your own, you know, with your debut novel, which is exciting, but you can't, everyone has to sort of get out of their, yeah, their brain. I think your, your assessment is correct. It was the book that I wanted to read, you right. know, that I wrote. Um, 
And yeah, I am a different person, you mm. know, I'm in my early 30s now, I'm a different person to the person who wrote that book. Mm. And in, due to the book, I'm now in a completely different place in life, you know. Mm. And all of that is something that I, I've actually spent a few years even just adjusting to, you know. Mm. I feel like in order to do, you know, I feel like my best writing, you know, came when... I, I had stability, even I could have, I was living a fairly precarious life. I had no money, but I had stability and I was thinking all the time. And I was often doing jobs that were like hands-on jobs. Like I'd be behind a bar or I'd be working in a cafe and I'd be thinking, I'd be writing my notebook and, you know, my life is completely different now, you know, mm. like I don't, I don't have to work in a bar. I don't, I don't have to work in a cafe. Like that's not part of my my life anymore like my I'm literally a knowledge worker now mm-hmm. and that I can that gets like kind of like mentally exhausting when it comes to creativity I kind of missed being a person who was a little bit more anonymous in life you know mm-hmm. 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 because it was uh more freeing I think and then I've got all these people who are like very invested in what I'm going to do next mm-hmm. as well as like a bunch of commercial um interests in my creativity now that didn't exist in the past and that's weird <laughs> so mm. that's like that cardi b saying isn't it that's weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all all of that is a completely different place as to where i was writing mm. what i was writing why i'm you know mm. um, and that's so all of that is something that I've literally had to spend time coming to terms with. And I don't think I could have written anything good in the last four years since it's come out because I had a bunch of processing to do, <laughs> but I basically processed it all now. Well, I'm excited to see what you come up with next. And I guess it's the, the, the challenge of success, which is kind of what every novelist, what you want your book to do well. But then the challenge of it doing well presents new new challenges. Um, but I'm sure, um, well, like you say, people are waiting. Um, but yeah, it's that that freeing of oneself to not even think about that and and to write what it what it is you want to write for for yourself because that's what people connected with in the first place, isn't it? That you wrote, as you said, the book you wanted to read. Um, I've got two questions that I always ask everybody, and I think this is a good segue into that. You know, you've already spoken about the success of your book. What what lessons have you learned through this journey that you'd like to share with us that we could learn from? I think I have learned really to follow my gut. Mm-hmm. I have a dear friend who has a book coming out soon. The book's incredible, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've spoken to her a lot about this because she's like, she's gearing up to do publicity okay. around her book. There's a, a layer to it that makes things a little bit more difficult. I think not dissimilar to me, you know, that sometimes people look at you through markers of your identity rather than you as a person. And so for me, when I was doing publicity for why I am and I wanted to be taken like I'm a serious nonfiction author and mm-hmm. take me as seriously as Noam Chomsky <laughs> you know like <laughs> I have a things to say about the world because I was 
young and a black and a woman, mm. some of the requests that I was being asked to, um, you know, do from the press that were around my work were things that, you know, things like, do you want to write a piece for this magazine on like different men that you've dated, <laughs> you know? What? And like, oh, what's it like dating a black man? What's it like dating a white man? Oh, what's it no. like dating an Asian man? And I was like, wow, Noam Chomsky would not be getting these questions, yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, because he's a man, mm, you know? Mm. Um, and I think like my friend who's trans is, is definitely on the receiving end of those kind of like requests as well. Like mm. at the end of the day, she's written a, an incredible work of literature. But I think some of the requests that she's receiving are basically do with her identity markers rather than the actual like um, amazing piece of work she's done. And just like me being black is, you know, of course, part of the work is that Mm. totally informs the work, Mm. (laughs) you know, Mm. I think like reducing me, my woman, Oh, you're a woman who dates men. So Mm. talk Mm. about men (laughs) rather than, you know, engaging me as a thinker was terrible and similar, like, you know, being trans is totally a part of the piece of thing that she's written, but engaging her on that level alone and not because she's written basically an amazing work of literature is, is awful. And I've been speaking to her about, you know, basically following your gut, standing your ground. Obviously, as creatives, we want our work to get into people's hands and you get these publicity opportunities mm. And some of them make you feel really uncomfortable. And it's about, you know what, I have to say no to this mm-hmm. because I'm not sure it's worth getting my work into people's hands if it's this way, if it comes through this lens, which I'm okay. fundamentally uncomfortable with, you know, because it perpetuates X stereotype or Y stereotype. Mm. So, you know, just following your gut um, and thinking, you know, carefully about, how you want the work to be presented. Mm. That's a lesson. I think I largely stuck to that. There have been times when, you know, for example, when I was working with a new publicist who convinced me to do something that I know I shouldn't have done and I had a bad feeling about, and then I did it. And guess what? It was horrible, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) So just like following my gut, um, what other lessons? I think this work has sort of brought me to a it's put me in this like weird place in society where prior to the publication of the book I was a person of no of very little consequence Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then like there was this point like in 2018 where like I couldn't really move around this is obviously pre-pandemic I couldn't get on the tube (laughs) really without somebody saying you became like (laughs) a celebrity and that was so weird. Mm. <laughs> it was absolutely weird, you know, and like it's forced me to think a lot about that um, whole phenomenon. And, you know, I've written about it for myself. I don't think anybody wants to read it because it's something that happens to so few people in this world. Very few people be able to resonate. And that's not what I want with my work. Um, but just like just the way that we put people on pedestals, really. There's a writer and an abolitionist. Her name is Mia Mingus. Mm -hmm. um, And she's written amazingly around um, how putting people on pedestals is essentially the inverse of shaming and um, 
you know, denouncing and throwing people out of our communities. And both are alienating and isolating to that, mm-hmm. to that person, you know. When we deify people or we demonise people, um, we, are, we are finding ways to relate to them uh, that alienates and isolates them from us and us from them. And mm-hmm. when I read that, I was just like, that is just an amazing way to articulate it. I love Mia Mingus's writing. She's based mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Her writing has been incredible, one of my best discoveries over the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, she is an abolitionist. She talks about um, alternative ways of addressing harm in our communities away from, like, criminalising in the criminal justice system. Right. And I think, so What when she spoke about that pedestal thing, I just thought it was... Um, amazing and I guess that's a lesson that I've learned um mm. you know post book publication as there's been times when I've been put on a pedestal and and also this work has brought me closer and also sometimes you know I've become friends with people who many people put on pedestals people who've been who are, who are very famous it's like mm. you know understanding actually how the received wisdom is that that is a desirable place to be, but actually it's weird and isolating and it stops us from relating to one another as human beings. And mm. I certainly experienced that. And I think that more of us need to, to really grapple with, as much as we love someone's work, it doesn't stop them from being essentially a human person. Mm. And I think that that's quite topical at the minute with social media and all these conversations about cancel culture. People often talk about cancelling and how terrible it is, but people don't talk that much about putting people on pedestals and how, how bad that is. And I think that Mia Mingus is right. You know, it is two sides of the same coin. Um, so those are two lessons that I've learned. Those are good. Those are good lessons. And I think it's so, it, it's so interesting because I suppose we are just in a populist age. You know, everything is populist but really you know what we're connecting to in your work or anybody else's work is the stuff that they're writing or they're creating I can't say from reading your work that I know Rennie is a person I I don't I know I know what you you think about certain things but your intimate friends will know what you're like as a person and I think sometimes we mistake somebody's work for knowing who they are and you can't know who someone is unless you actually are in relationship with those people and it's just an issue of our age and I think you're you're in an as you say a unique position learning to navigate that but I suppose learning to navigate that but still trying to enjoy and still create because you have a voice that people clearly connect with um, sometimes you need, I always, I always talk about Adele as a singer and, you know, think about why has she done so well? And I was talking to a friend about this and they said, well, she puts words to things that I'm feeling and she does it in a very, uh, a, a very raw, honest way. And y- you have put words to things that people have been feeling for a really long time. And that's what they're connecting with. And the more you continue to just express that side of yourself, the more we get to be like, someone has said what I've been thinking for ages and and has put context to it because it's rooted in something. And that's really exciting. And that's what we need, not the fame. And that that stuff is just, 
ethereal, ephemeral. It doesn't, it's just like whatever, you know, it doesn't mean anything, you know? Yeah. Much like, you know, a wonderful actor does a great job of conveying human emotion, you know, through, from the stage or the screen. And I, you know, I obviously feel very blessed that I've been able to articulate something for so many of my readers, but mm. I started to say back in 2017, and I don't think I said it very well. I didn't, I don't think I expressed myself very well, but I was like, just because I'm particularly skilled at articulating mm. this thing doesn't make me like, doesn't mean nobody else can do it. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't make me better than, than you or you. Do you know what I mean? I don't think people quite got what I was saying. Um, and like, I guess what I was trying to say is that I'm a talented writer, but it doesn't mean that I'm like, I'm a better person than anybody else. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so please don't engage with me as, <laughs> as though that's the case, because mm -hmm. I was going through this weird time when people were like, thankfully, I think with the pandemic, you know, nobody can go out. So it's not happening that much, but there was one time I was in just a cafe with my friend. This woman came up to me. She was like, Oh, I love you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, this is strange. Mm. And also it's kind of a bit embarrassing for my friend, you know? <laughs> um, and what I think, you know, what she meant is I love your writing. Yes. And that's what an amazing uh, compliment. Mm. But loving me, well, I think there's like, the amount of people who love me in this world, I can count them on one hand, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I'd like to keep it that way, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. My last question, what music are you listening to? All right, let me look, look at my uh, music app. Yes. I've been listening to a lot of pop music at the minute. Uh -huh. hmm, I was listening to the Beatles yesterday. Really? A, a song in particular or just an album? Oh, um, Blackbird. Beautiful it just, song. It was just in my head, you know, mm. so I just started listening to it. Um, DMX, obviously, R.I.P. Yeah. You know, a particular sad. song? particular DMX oh, song? Oh, uh, the Rough Riders anthem, of course. Yeah. Oh, I can listen to the gym. <laughs> I've really been enjoying the musician MNEK. Yeah. Um, just fun, fun pop to listen to when I'm riding my bike, you know? <laughs> um, these like amazing like spring days that we've been having. I've just loved putting my earphones in and just like going for a really long bike ride. Mm -hmm. um, let's see what else. The soundtrack from RuPaul's Drag Race UK. <laughs> <laughs> Very much enjoyed that. That's very eclectic. You've got the Beatles, DMX, m and &E k and RuPaul's Drag Race uh, soundtrack. Absolutely. That's good. Uh, what else? I've got some So Solid crew here. Which Hamilton one? Soundtrack. Oh, uh, So Solid, Solid Crew 21 Seconds. That's still a tune. I still quote it. I still say two multiplied by 10 plus one, Romeo Dunn. I still say it. I've got the Hamilton soundtrack. That's one to listen to when I'm feeling a bit down. Okay. You know, it just helps me. You know, I just sing along. What yeah. else have I got here? Hmm, Solange, Erica Badu, Tracy Chapman, all sorts. That's My good. music taste is very eclectic. I like it. I like it. Well, listen, Rennie, thank you for your time, for your thoughts. I feel encouraged listening and uh, speaking with you today. I'm excited for what you have next. And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Not a problem. I'm glad you feel encouraged, although I can understand why you'd feel cynical because, yeah, it's, it's easy to feel cynical right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, trying to look on the bright side. <laughs> Thanks so much. 
Thank you so much to Reniedo Lodge. If you haven't read her book, it's available in multiple languages wherever you get your books. You can also read more of her writings on her website or follow her on Instagram and Twitter. All details are in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we continue our discussion on race and racism in the UK with a very special guest. I absolutely loved this conversation. Historian Michael Taylor, author of the incredible book, The Interest, How the British Establishment Resisted the Abolition of Slavery. I, I think one of Britain's great problems with historical literacy is that we have really failed to recognise that before abolition, which we celebrate uh, and which we regard as a form of entire and total absolution for whatever um, you know atrocities there might have been beforehand, is that there were several hundred years of slaveholding, of slave trading. We were the world's most dominant, most profitable and most powerful uh, slaveholding empire. And even whenever there was abolitionism, there was still decades, and in you know, particular this one decade, uh, of fierce resistance to the idea of abolition. It, abolition was not a fait accompli. It, you know, the idea that uh, Britain rode to the rescue of enslaved Africans on a wave of uh, Christian piety and a sense of uh, liberty and justice is just bogus nonsense. It didn't happen like that. Until next time. <laughs>